Okay, let's uh, begin with uh, some questions that you might have from the previous lecture concerning how uh, we work to benefit all beings, what type of relationship we establish with uh, anybody that uh, we encounter while we're working as a bodhisattva or striving to be a bodhisattva and how that affects our close relationships with family and friends. So, uh, could you explain, please, what would be uh, the state of um, uh, true relations with other uh, in the situation when uh, this uh, other um, criticize you and um, um, uh, maybe complains and uh, uh, speaks angrily with you. So at this very moment, what would be this uh, true relation, how you can feel this uh, true, true relation in yourself and uh, uh, how it will manifest in your behavior. When we are working to uh, try to benefit all beings, then uh, in terms of our, uh, the psychological dimension, we have uh, hopefully developed a great deal of patience so we don't get uh, angry when uh, somebody criticizes us uh, with a, um, a level uh, mind, we examine, is their criticism correct or incorrect? If it's correct, we thank them for their criticism and we try to correct our, ourselves. And if their criticism is unfounded, then uh, also we apologize if uh, they have uh, been offended. We didn't mean to offend them. And uh, still, we uh, um, practice patience and don't get angry. I find it very helpful to remember that uh, Buddha didn't please everybody. Not everybody liked the Buddha, so what do I expect for myself? Of course there are going to be people that will criticize me and that uh, don't like me. Well, Nothing special about that. We can really only help those who are receptive to our help. The main point of bodhisattva behavior is that uh, we have the wish, the intention to be able to help everybody. We're not yet Buddhas, so we just try to help them. We try our best. And sometimes there are uh, people that we realize that uh, uh, it's beyond our ability to really help them. Uh, there is a uh, schizophrenic woman in uh, Berlin, where I live, who has been uh, stalking me for uh, more than 10 years. You know, she calls in the middle of the night, she knocks on the door, she Someone. insists that I'm Kala Chakra and she's my consort. I mean, she's completely uh, schizophrenic. So I, uh, <laughs> I've told her many times that uh, uh, I am not capable of uh, helping her, that she needs professional help. She refuses to accept that there, anything is wrong with her that she has a problem. So there really is nothing that I can do. So if she calls at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, which uh, sometimes she does, I just, uh, you know, pick up the phone and hang it up again. I mean, she knows. Well, she obviously doesn't know that I'm uh, uh, not going to uh, deal with her, but uh, I don't get angry. I wish her well, but really there's nothing I can do. 
It's beyond my ability. So sometimes I joke with my friends that uh, at least my stalker loves me when I feel nobody loves me. <laughs> so anyone else? What are the criteria uh, to recognize that uh, our help uh, um, uh, really benefits uh, others uh, and uh, doesn't uh, uh, hurt them, doesn't harm them? That's very difficult to uh, determine whether uh, what type of benefit our uh, help will have. Uh, if we look in terms of short-term and long-term benefit, we should always uh, aim for long-term benefit, not uh, short-term. You know, you don't just, uh, in order to get your child to stop crying, you uh, give them candy. That's, that's short-term benefit, not long-term. And sometimes the uh, short-term effect will be uh, painful for the person, but uh, long-term benefit is uh, there, like uh, a doctor having to give you a painful injection in order to cure you of something. And uh, the effect that uh, our behavior, you know, what we do with others, isn't limited to just uh, the effect it has on that person, because uh, it will also affect everybody else that this person interacts with. So that's one of the uh, main reasons why we aim to become a Buddha with bodhicitta, so that uh, we would know all the consequences of uh, uh, any help that we try to give to somebody, and what would in fact be all the uh, uh, results on them and everyone they interact with. This is why it's very important in the relationship that we develop that uh, uh, we don't have preconceptions, we don't have ju make judgments, but uh, we try to take in as much information as we can about the other person and their situation and try to understand what uh, pattern of behavior that uh, they have, but to recognize their individuality. They're not just uh, another case of this or that syndrome. And then take into consideration all the factual variables and psychological variables of the person and uh, try to um, advise in a way that uh, fits all of that. Did you try to look uh, at the text uh, 37 uh, Bodhisattva practices from the point of view of contextual therapy? Are there any uh, um, relations uh, with um, I think that uh, that would be a very fruitful thing to do I must say that uh, I worked with uh, my uh, colleague, Dr. Dukamanaj, on this and finished this article only uh, about five days before I came here. And uh, uh, my Russian translator on the uh, uh, Study Buddhism project, Evgeny Buzyatov uh, translated it into Russian very quickly in these five days. So this is a very new uh, area that, uh, of uh, uh, cooperation that's just begun as a fruit of uh, uh, many, many years of discussions, but this is the first time uh, she and I have actually collaborated on writing something and analyzing something. So I hope that uh, uh, there will be uh, uh, many more uh, opportunities uh, to uh, go further.
because there are many ideas that uh, both of us have. So certainly looking at 37 bodhisattva practices could be very beneficial. You see, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist teachers are not therapists. And that's a mistake to uh, expect that a Buddhist teacher will uh, uh, be a therapist. The uh, Buddhist uh, teaching method is that uh, the uh, teacher gives you uh, instructions, gives you material, and you have to work on it by yourself. So uh, the responsibility is always given to uh, the practitioner themselves. It's not through, you know, every week you have a session with your uh, teacher. That doesn't happen. But I think that there are many methods, uh, particularly analytical tools, that you find in different types of Western uh, uh, psychology and therapy that uh, could help to uh, uh, expand the uh, Buddhist presentation and vice versa. So let us uh, go on then with the uh, application of the five dimensions to the Buddhist relation with a spiritual teacher. And uh, in our discussion, we uh, won't uh, um, include the more advanced Buddhist uh, practice of seeing the teacher as a Buddha. But uh, putting that aside, let's uh, analyze just the general student-teacher relationship in uh, Buddhism. The, uh, uh, relating to uh, our teacher in a uh, healthy manner it is considered the root of the path. That's what it's usually called. And like a root, it uh, gives stability to our practice, like a root gives stability to uh, a plant. And uh, like a root, it uh, provides nourishment to us through uh, guidance and uh, inspiration. So this uh, fact of, uh, or point of inspiration is uh, really, I think, uh, the essence of the relation with the teacher because the teacher serves as the role model not necessarily that we ourselves want to become teachers but a role model in terms of how we behave how we deal with others and so on and as a role model the teacher is very inspiring it inspires us to try to uh, become as highly developed as the teacher is so there are many different levels of teacher of Buddhist teacher, many different levels of Buddhist students. There may be uh, a teacher that just uh, uh, delivers a lecture, like at a university, and we are just going to gain information. But uh, we're not terribly serious in terms of our uh, uh, commitment to the Buddhist path. We're just sort of like what's called a Dharma tourist. So all the way from that level to the level in which we are very serious. We've examined the teacher, the teacher has examined us, and uh, we make a commitment to uh, actually uh, follow the guidance of this teacher. The uh, word in uh, Tibetan, which is used for uh, the uh, relationship that we establish with a spiritual teacher is the same word as is used uh, with respect to uh, a doctor as the connotation of somebody that you trust. You entrust yourself to the guidance of this person like you do to a doctor. So it's based on confidence, having uh, really examined the person and respect. So let's uh, use this uh, five dimensions uh, framework for being able to uh, see what is the optimal way 
which the teacher and student relate to each other, and what are the obstacles that arise. So, dimension of factual variables. Optimally, uh, the biological facts, in other words, the age, the uh, sex, the health, etc., the uh, family situation, etc., um, enables the uh, students to attend the teachings. If the person is three years old and they go to the teaching, then uh, that doesn't really work. Or if the teacher is uh, sick and in the hospital, that doesn't really work. So the actual facts of the uh, situation of the student and the teacher have to be conducive to uh, studying with each other. You know, if the, it requires payment to an entrance fee in order to attend a teaching and you don't have the money to go, you can't study with that teacher. It's unfortunate when that happens, but that happens. Oh, and, and the geographic situations of the two have to uh, uh, be conducive. So if they live in two different parts of the uh, world and they're not able to travel and see each other, then the relationship doesn't work. Or if the teacher is traveling all the time and the teacher and student need to have the ability to communicate with each other either directly or indirectly through a translator in a way that's sufficient for the studies. If you can't understand each other's language and there's no translator, you can't study. And these are factual variables. Then uh, conventional obstacles would be difficulties or conflicts in any of these uh, variables. Like for instance, you don't speak the same language and there are no translators available. Or you can't afford to go to where the teacher is teaching. And the deepest obstacles would be the teacher or student identifying concretely with uh, the factual variables that pertain to them and feeling that the other one is too different for me to be able to relate to. You find this sometimes that uh, Western people feel that I can't possibly uh, learn from a Tibetan, from a traditional Tibetan. They're too different. Or a traditional Tibetan teacher feeling that the uh, Western student is not serious. So, you know, they can't possibly teach a Western student. That happens. So that's the dimension of factual variables. Then the uh, dimension of psychological variables. So what would be the optimal situation? Would be that uh, each side has the necessary cognitive abilities, say the intelligence and so on, and the appropriate psychological balance and emotional maturity for a healthy relationship. It's very interesting that you have this uh, uh, saying that uh, if you have two students, one is uh, um, very intelligent, but has very, very bad temper and uh, not a very good personality, and you have another student who is not very intelligent, but has a very kind personality, that, uh, that one that is less intelligent, but very kind and uh, a helpful person will be the better student. This is the one that you should focus on. If the less intelligent but kind student doesn't learn, it's your fault as a teacher. You should be able to explain in a simpler way that uh, this person can understand. I remember once I had a, uh, a student who was uh, uh, unable to uh, understand things uh, conceptually. If you uh, explained, 
you know, in words, let's say a visualization. She couldn't understand, and the only way to get her to understand is that we had students in the uh, class act out, you know, that uh, somebody comes into the mandala, and then you send out, uh, you know, rays of light and so on to that student. If we actually showed it visually, then she could understand. And then she became a very serious practitioner. So the teacher needs to be very flexible and creative in terms of uh, how you communicate. And conventional obstacles is when the student or teacher lack any of these qualifications, either cognitive or emotional. For instance, uh, when either of them have uh, inappropriate projections, for instance, uh, overestimating uh, the abilities of the other one or underestimating them. I mean, that can uh, often happen. That you uh, assume that uh, the students can understand and you go way over their heads. Or you think that uh, uh, they can't understand and then you uh, explain in a too simple a way. And different teachers are more able to explain one topic than another topic. So to assume that they can, you know, explain something that they're not that well versed in, you know, some teachers are not that well educated, then also you get problems. You know, a teacher that has uh, specialized in uh, tantric rituals, then uh, if you expect that that teacher will be able to teach you logic and debate when they haven't studied that, and they're not able to do that, then you can get very disappointed and disillusioned about the teacher. So you want to avoid that. Know what the teacher is good at and what they're not particularly well-versed in. There can also be over-idealization of the other. The student idealizes the uh, teacher, thinks they're a Buddha, they know everything, so I don't have to explain you know, what my problem is. The teacher can read my mind and will give me the solution to everything. Or the teacher idealizing the student Ah, uh, this is my disciple that I've been waiting for all my life, who's going to carry on my lineages and so on. And uh, that doesn't fit the disciple at all. Uh, also, what's very serious uh, would be unresolved conscious or unconscious emotional issues that could uh, lead to inappropriate needs or expectations. Inappropriate needs or expectations with risk of emotional, sexual, or economic exploitation. That often happens in uh, uh, abusive relations that develop with uh, uh, abusive teachers. The teacher has unresolved sexual issues and so looks for, uh, to exploit the student in order to uh, satisfy their sexual needs. Or the student has that uh, unresolved uh, sexual problem and tries to seduce the teacher. So these things happen. Fortunately, these are big obstacles. It could be in the sexual area, it could be in the financial area, it could be in the uh, power, trying to uh, control, etc. So that's why it's so important that uh, both the student and the teacher have uh, a very uh, good level of emotional stability and maturity. You don't come into the relation with, uh, especially as a teacher, with unresolved emotional issues. 
you know, unfortunately this happens. There are uh, many uh, uh, teachers, or some teachers, I can't say many, who are uh, sent out from uh, India, and uh, they've maybe completed their uh, monastic academic training, or they've done a three-year retreat and learned all the rituals. Uh, and so they're sent out to be a, a teacher at a Dharma center, but they really still have uh, some emotional difficulties that they haven't actually addressed. And there they are, and everybody is looking to them as the teacher. That's why this uh, instruction about seeing the guru as a Buddha is very, very dangerous, uh, especially when uh, practiced with uh, teachers who are not really very well qualified. So the advice is always to examine the teacher very, very carefully over a long period of time before you really entrust yourself to this teacher's guidance. And after an examination, if you find that the teacher still has uh, emotional issues and problems, well, we can gain information from this teacher. That's not a problem, but uh, you might not want to entrust yourself to close guidance from this person. Hmm. Deepest obstacles are the uh, student identifying concretely with being inadequate compared to the teacher. You know, I could never become as highly developed as my teacher, so you give up. Or it could be the teacher concretely identifying with their own level of understanding and projecting it onto the student, <laughs> like saying, I understand this, why don't you? I mean, sometimes <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, the example of my own teacher, Serkong uh, Grimpache. Uh, this is uh, not so much uh, projecting their own level onto the student, but uh, this type of uh, interaction can be very helpful. I'll give you the example. I studied with him uh, very closely for nine years until he passed away. He was one of the teachers of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I was his interpreter and uh, uh, secretary for uh, his dealing with uh, foreigners and so on. And I was uh, translating, uh, well, not actually translating, I was studying with him. He was teaching me something, uh, translating it, I suppose, for somebody else as well. And uh, there was a word that he said that I didn't understand. And he always encouraged me, if I didn't understand any word, to ask him what it meant. So I asked him, what does this word mean? And he said, I explained that word to you seven years ago. I remember, why don't you? Which <laughs> actually was very helpful advice to uh, pay more attention and try to remember everything. As part of being trained to be a translator, they, uh, the teacher trains you to have good memory. So then the uh, dimension of systemic variables. So optimally, the student and teacher interact in societies and families and environments conducive for the spiritual practice. This is why uh, many Westerners uh, find it very helpful to study with a teacher in India or Nepal in a society in which uh, um, Buddhist practice is uh, uh, very widely accepted. There are many, many other peoples practicing. There are monks and nuns around and so on. The, Social setting is much more conducive than being in a uh, busy Western city and having to uh, come to teachings only after a long day of work when you're tired. Conventional obstacles are when you're in societies or families or environments that are not conducive or supportive for a spiritual practice. For instance, living in countries which have repressive religious or governmental policies concerning the practice of uh, Buddhism, I'm sure I don't have to explain that to those of you who 
grew up during the Soviet period, or there could be opposition from uh, family members that don't want you to uh, uh, study with a teacher. Or from the teacher's side, they could have a large number of other students and many duties in the uh, monastery. They travel a lot, so they don't have personal time for you as a student. And then another conventional obstacle, one that I face myself as a teacher, is uh, mixing up several roles with your students. With some of them, I'm a father figure, but uh, I'm also a friend. We go out socially, let's say, to movies. And uh, for some of them, I'm also their employer. I pay them to work on the uh, website. So it's, and I'm also their teacher. So it's mixing up different roles, and it's very confusing for the student. Which role are you in now? I think this is a serious uh, issue when it comes to uh, Western teachers relating to Western students. Tibetan teachers, you know, they're not your good friend as a, you know, if you're a student of this teacher. You don't hang out with them and uh, uh, socialize and so on. But uh, Western teachers, some of them can isolate themselves completely from uh, their students. And if they don't have any other support group of people that they can just you know, relax with that are not looking to them as their teacher, very difficult. So I must say that uh, if from the side of the teacher it's easy <laughs> to play several roles, it's not necessarily easy from the side of the student. And I don't know what a good solution to that is, actually. Then, because it's a different, well, it's a different situation from being a school teacher and students who are, you know, very young, I think. Anyway, uh, the deepest obstacles is uh, the student or teacher identifying concretely with the systems in which they live and project that uh, onto the, the student that they should have the same values and expectations. So, for instance, a uh, Western uh, student uh, projecting onto the uh, Buddhist teacher that they also have the role of a pastor. In other words, they can give them, uh, go to them for advice about their marriage problems or about their sexual problems, which is completely inappropriate to ask a monk or a nun about. Or they go to the teacher and expect that the teacher is going to be a therapist for them. I start telling them about all their personal issues. Uh, from the side of the teacher, the deepest obstacle would be that uh, they identify with their own tradition and they uh, insist that Western students follow strictly all the protocols of behavior that are listed in the classical texts. There's an enormous list of uh, protocols of how you behave with the teacher, you don't sit with your feet pointing them toward them, you don't wear a hat, uh, you walk behind them, you don't step on their shadow, you don't sit on their seat. There are many, many uh, 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 you know, items in this protocol. And if the teacher insists that the students follow that, the Western students, it becomes very... Um, hmm. so, then the uh, dimension of relational ethics Optimally, the student and teacher treat each other uh, in accordance with the principle of the Buddhist ethics concerning giving and receiving. So the teacher is uh, very generous in giving appropriate teachings and guidance, generous with their time, 
and the student needs to be generous in terms of helping the teacher with uh, whatever is needed, with both sides showing respect to each other and not making unreasonable demands, so being very considerate of the situation of each other, and the teacher not burdening the student with their own personal issues. So then the conventional obstacles are uh, um, tendencies coming from past experiences of uh, injustice, leading to blindly seeking an appropriate compensation in the relationship. So for instance, having as a student, having experienced uh, unfairly that uh, your parents died when you were young, or one of them died when you were young, then uh, hoping that the teacher will uh, substitute for the lost parent by making all decisions for you, giving the, the affection that you were missing, and so on. Or the uh, teacher hoping that the student will act like the devoted son or daughter that they never had. Or sometimes what uh, happens is that uh, the teacher in the past, uh, through their life, had to uh, be poor, they had to be uh, celibate as a monk or a nun, and so, you know, psychologically they feel that uh, this was uh, an injustice that they had to experience. And so they want compensation for that from the students. So they want the students to have, be sexually available to them or financially available to them and so on to make up for the fact that they had to be celibate or poor in a monastery, let's say. You know, people who feel that uh, I've sacrificed so much as a poor student and given up, you know, having any relationships or anything like that so that I could uh, complete all my studies and now I've earned the right to make as much money as I can and to have, you know, as many affairs and so on because I've uh, 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 put in, you know, I've paid the dues as in a sense. This is an unconscious uh, mechanism that... Uh, uh, does occur and explains very often uh, some of the uh, misbehavior of uh, teachers. The deepest obstacle would be the student or teacher concretely identifying with their roles and the teacher demanding that the student prioritize them over any other personal relationships and always be available to serve them. In other words, going on a power trip over the student and the teacher becoming very possessive of the student and feeling betrayed if the student studies with other teachers. You know, they demand their loyalty. And on the student side, uh, relinquishing any responsibility to hold the teacher accountable in case of unethical behavior. You know, they're the teachers, so, you know, they can do anything. This type of uh, attitude. You know, the teacher uh, is exploitive, you know, abuses students sexually, financially, uh, hits them and so on. And the students say, oh, the teacher, you know, that's uh, crazy wisdom. So it's okay. They don't hold the teacher accountable or responsible. Then the uh, dimension of relational self-other establishment. Um, optimally, you know, in a student-teacher relationship, you, because there's a certain contract that you have with the uh, teacher, there's sort of an I-it element in that uh, relationship. But uh, you know, just, the teacher is just this object up there that's giving teachings. 
but uh, optimally that uh, doesn't prevent occasional IU, you know, real human contact with the teacher. Uh, a good example of that uh, was uh, mentioned in uh, an interview that Michelle Obama had, and she described a, uh, an audience that she and her husband, uh, President uh, Obama, had with the Queen of England. So in that type of meeting, you know, Michelle Obama is the self, and the Queen of England is sort of an it, you know, an object. But uh, at one point in the uh, interaction, uh, Michelle Obama said uh, to the Queen, you know, oh, my shoes are really tight, my feet hurt. And the Queen said to her, my feet hurt too. So that was a moment of I, you, you know, real human-to-human -human communication. <laughs> and uh, the teacher, uh, optimally, should be able to uh, maintain, at least from their side, an I, you relation with the, with the student, free of projections, preconceptions, and judgments about the student, regardless of the student's ability to do that as well. From the student side, optimally, would be uh, able to, emer to merge themselves with the teacher to become a we in the sense of having integrated the teacher's way of uh, uh, acting, speaking, and thinking with their own. In other words, you try to, you get inspired by the way that the teaching, that the teacher deals with others, and you try to integrate that. That's called guru yoga. You integrate that with your own way of behaving. So in that sense, you become a we with the teacher. And uh, optimally also for the student, when the teacher is either absent or has uh, died already, the ability to maintain an internal dialogue between yourself and the internalized uh, teacher to receive direction in terms of uh, how you deal with difficult situations in life. In other words, uh, when your teacher has died, for example, and you're faced with a difficult situation, you think, well, how would my teacher deal with this? And then, in a sense, you know, you get the answer, well, my teacher would, do, would act like this and like that. So this is uh, this uh, internalized dialogue mode of uh, establishing the self. Like when you speak with your conscience. Conventional obstacles is either for the student or the teacher that uh, the I-it aspect of uh, relationship dominates and prevents an I-you type of encounter. You know, the student only looks at the teacher as uh, a source of information, an encyclopedia in a sense, but uh, uh, treats the teacher just as an it, as an object, you know, as if uh, the teacher didn't have uh, feelings or emotions or anything like that, was not a human being. For example, <laughs> I uh, have uh, uh, sometimes served as a liaison officer for uh, some of uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama's uh, travels uh, when he goes on tour in foreign countries. And one of the things that I always uh, uh, make sure about is that uh, usually the organizers never, ever think that His Holiness has to go to the toilet. It is never part of any schedule that he, go, he goes, gives a lecture, gets into the car, goes to the next appointment, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to remain, remind them that this is a human being and occasionally needs to go to the toilet. So don't treat him just as an it.
you know, but as a, a you that has uh, that is human. So, <laughs> uh, conventional obstacle on the student side is having merged with the teacher, blindly adopting all the irrelevant uh, habits and idiosyncrasies of the teacher. You know, you have to drink Tibetan tea, and you have to, uh, you know, speak in a certain way, and so on. This is silly. The deepest obstacles are the student concretely identifying with being merged as a we with the teacher and assuming that they've reached the, high, the same level of understanding as the teacher. Or the teacher concretely identifying with being merged as a we with the student and blocking the student from individualizing. That uh, sometimes happens in uh, uh, monasteries, particularly a uh, Western monastery that has a very strict traditional Tibetan teacher uh, not allowing for any individual creativity on the side of the uh, Western monks. You know, you just, you've belonged to the community, there's a we, and doesn't uh, allow them to be individual with their individual uh, ideas and so on. So the last topic is uh, dealing with close relationships while uh, also being in a Buddhist style student-teacher relationship. This is very delicate. You know, how do we balance our commitments to the teacher with our commitments to our family, or our commitments to our business, to our uh, profession? So optimally, the student-teacher relationship should uh, enhance the student's ability to establish and maintain healthy relationships with others. And it shouldn't interfere with their commitments to family, profession, and so on. For instance, uh, I uh, traveled a great deal with uh, my teacher, Sirkum Rinpoche, who was an old uh, man at the time, quite overweight, and uh, he required help getting into and out of a car and uh, assistance in uh, many things. So by always, you know, because of my relation with him and the respect I had for him, always watching out for uh, his welfare, how is he comfortable helping him uh, to get up, this and that, I learned, or I was trained in a sense, to be able to do that with other people as well. So by developing this type of attitude and helping your teacher, you develop the skills to be able to transfer that and help everybody. And the uh, conventional obstacles is the commitment to the teacher interferes with uh, the commitments and responsibilities to family and friends. So when, uh, as I explained before, uh, we make special times that uh, we're going to be with the uh, family or our friends. So if there's a conflict, a scheduling conflict, we might say, well, you know, there's this uh, special retreat. I really want to go on that. Can't uh, go with you um, um, to some sort of holiday at that particular time, but let's find another time that works well for both of us. So you make compromises in this way. You don't just uh, abandon your personal uh, commitments with your friends and family. And they, the other person, our partner or family, might feel hurt. They might feel disappointed. That could be part of their psychological profile. But if we offer them something, you know, Something in exchange so that we show that uh, we're not just throwing them in the garbage and ignoring them or abandoning them. That helps to uh, uh, them to get over this disappointment. 
And the deepest obstacles are concretely identifying with being the student of the teacher and that preventing us uh, from establishing close relationships with either other teachers or other people in general. And on the teacher's side, concretely identifying with their role as a teacher in these types of relationships, and they're unable to establish close personal relationships because they impose their role as a teacher on anybody that they meet. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's, you know, you're a teacher and you identify, this is who I am. You know, I am a teacher, and then you're not able to establish any close relationships with anybody mm -hmm. because anybody that you meet, you start to try to be their teacher. Uh -huh. And you give them advice and uh, so on, even when they don't want it. So you're not able to really establish friendships, right. let alone a family. You know, you have this not only with teachers, you have this, for example, with with uh, some mothers who concretely identify with being mother and then they try to mother everybody that they meet. Go to sleep early, don't eat too much, I mean, come on. <laughs> so that uh, is the presentation in terms of uh, the student-teacher relationship and how these, uh, the analysis with these five dimensions can help us to identify uh, problems that can arise and uh, what would be the optimal way of uh, dealing with such a relationship. So we have time for some questions. As uh, she understood, uh, there were three types of uh, relations. Uh, I, two, uh, I, uh, you, uh, I do, uh, um, um, I eat, and I, we. And uh, uh, she didn't uh, und uh, she, she hasn't understood uh, properly what is uh, the last one, I, we. Right, actually there are six types of uh, relationships that are described in the system. We have, uh, uh, it's not I, we, it's we. We just merge together. And then there is I, it, and it, I, and I, you. And then there are two more, which are internalized, where you don't have an external other, where uh, you uh, uh, just uh, relate, for instance, with some uh, project or something like that, some ideal. Any other questions? Uh, about uh, uh, we, is that uh, something which is uh, good or bad? Uh, it depends on how that uh, merger with uh, we takes place. In the uh, case of uh, a mother and an infant, it's uh, very healthy that uh, the mother protects the infant and carries the infant around and so on. You know, it's, they become a we. Especially when uh, the woman is pregnant. Then, uh, you know, you have this, uh, you know, I'm eating for two, I'm resting for two, you've become a we with the uh, unborn uh, child, as opposed to viewing the unborn child as this alien it that has invaded my body and is inside me. That obviously is not very healthy. <laughs> you know, these horror science fiction movies. But uh, uh, in certain situations, becoming a we with uh, uh, others uh, can be uh, helpful for uh, building a community in which uh, you all follow the same uh, rules.
like in the army or uh, uh, any other type of uh, community in which there's a very strong discipline that everybody needs to follow. Then you become a we in that group. The danger is, of course, when uh, in that uh, we, you lose your individuality, and individuality is not allowed. And sometimes in families, the uh, patriarch of the family will uh, assume that the whole family is a we, and uh, rules what they, everybody in the family should do. We don't do that in this family. You know, that type of attitude. That well, could be quite destructive. Someone else? I think what's uh, very helpful with uh, this material, especially these five dimensions, and you know, the articles are uh, available on the website so you can familiarize yourself with them much more, is to uh, use this uh, analytical tool to investigate uh, your own personal relationships, and we have many of them, and uh, what is going on in each type of relationship. Uh, this is uh, very much uh, fits, fitting with the Buddhist teachings of dependent arising, in terms of our understanding of ourself, our understanding of other people, the understanding of the relationships that uh, we have between us. All of those arise dependently on many, many factors, many variables. They're changing all the time, evolving and growing all the time. And we don't make our relationships into solid things, you know, our relationship. And then you uh, argue with the other person. You're not relating to our relationship as if our relationship was some sort of external thing that was there. And uh, uh, you don't take our relationship seriously or this and that. You know, there are these uh, issues that arise when we don't understand the dependent arising nature of relationships. Hmm. Okay, so then we'll continue tomorrow. Thank you.